Storytelling is a huge part of making a music video, but the short form lends itself to powerful imagery that can stand alone. An iconic look, the perfect set. Think Michael Jackson lighting up the sidewalk in Billie Jean or Johnny Cash in Hurt. Those specifics can define a video and an artist. I'm Daniel Ralston. Today I'll be talking to Matthew Ralston, no relation. This is Videohead. Matthew Rolston is known for iconic imagery and old Hollywood glamour. He's directed classic videos for Salt and Peppa, En Vogue, and TLC, and he's worked with Lenny Kravitz, The Foo Fighters, Beyonce, and Mary J. Blige. We get into Matthew's process, staring at colors and sometimes smoking weed, which sounds really nice, by the way, and we talk about his life beyond music videos and working with video head favorite Morrissey. In fact, we're such Morrissey fans that comedian and TV host April Richardson is going to stop by for a quick discussion of Morrissey's music videos. Here it is. This is Videohead. Your videos do, certainly throughout the late 80s, have just a dominant color palette. I'm thinking just off the top of my head that the Don Henley video that you did, which I guess is a little earlier. That's the very first music drenched video. Drenched in blue. Mm-hmm. Um, such a very specific look. A turquoise and, blue yes. tint on the black and white. And what is... This might sound like a very basic question, but I, I think people would be interested to know. When you're deciding on that kind of color or that kind of thing that's going to define the video, what are you using for that source? How do you lock in on the exact thing that you want to do? The exact color, the exact style? It's emotional. It's an emotional response to the feeling of the music. Uh, that music spoke to me in blue, blue tones. That's all I can say. It's very subjective. You know, there isn't a choice that is made that is random. Uh, they they might be instinctive and non-analytical, but they're not random. Uh, for a man of my specific age, you made a lot of videos for TLC, Salt and Pepper, and Vogue, Mary J. Blige that are very important. Uh, they were on TV constantly, and they were the first videos that I can remember that flipped the sort of paradigm around, and the women were in control, and they were the ones who were essentially uh, often case sort of uh, showing men in a way that often women were depicted in music videos. You have to think about uh, the history of my still photography. I came of age in my still work uh, in the period of uh, the mid and late 80s, period of gender bending, the beginning of the breakdown of uh, traditional gender roles, which we're now living in a a period in which uh, that's very important today, but that was the beginning of it. I have always been attracted to uh, powerful female figures. Uh, I'm sure there's a part of me in that. All portraits, in my opinion, are as much a portrait of the person who made the image as the person being depicted in the image. How can I put it? I'm in touch with my feminine self. And you can touch it too, but you got to call my agent first. <laughs> I grew up going to art school. I went to a school in Los Angeles called Art Center. And uh, in that time, in that time as a student, uh, there was a great deal of interest in, uh, uh, in old Hollywood films, particularly for me. I can remember cutting class, uh, cutting high school, 
and going to hang out in a little theater on Melrose, a revival house, across the street from here, across the street from Paramount Studios. So at three in the afternoon, I might be looking at, say, Joan Crawford in Mildred Pierce or some other iconic female role. Films of the 30s and 40s uh, were dominated by powerful female figures. I'm sure that was a response at that time against male domination. We still live in a male-dominated society. I was always attracted to that for whatever personal reasons. Uh, my mother, I don't know, lots of reasons. And uh, so that was very much part of my thinking. Uh, the other thing is that my photography for magazines, I'm thinking of my work for Rolling Stone or Interview, uh, was also an attempt to make a comment on the persona of that artist at that time. They're timely comments. And uh, it, when you see those images now out of context, you don't have that. But yes, gender bending, empowerment of females, a breakdown of gender, break, the breakdown of traditional gender roles, these are all agendas of mine that are personal, that filtered into the work. Sometimes it's a matter of the right idea and the right project at hitting at the right time. Mm -hmm. uh, we had Jonas Ockerland on last week and he talked about how he really, he's a, he's a great director. He's a great director. And he talked about how he hated the ray of light video that he did for Madonna, which is a completely iconic music video, won many awards. How he hated, he didn't want to show it to his friends, but he realized afterwards when the song became big and the video became huge, that so much of video making is delivering the right thing at the right time for the right artist who's ready to have a moment. And I was thinking about that in relation to, you directed Seal's Kiss from a Rose video. Oh, that's a good story. The first one. <laughs> yes. Because there's a second version tied to the Batman movie directed it's, by Joel Schumacher. That is a tragic story. Please tell me the story. <laughs> I would love to hear it. <laughs> First of all, I love that song. It's a beautiful song. And I was thrilled when I was offered it. And uh, to me, it had a kind of 60s appeal. It sounded like a kind of troubadour-inspired song from the 60s. Of course, it was modern, but it had that flavor for me. And I dreamt up this idea based on the movie Blow Up, which was one of my favorites, one of my art school retro films that I would have loved. And uh, cast uh, uh, Seal in the role of a womanizing photographer with the every beautiful woman in this imaginary town, whatever it is, London or New York or LA, at his feet. Uh, and this video uh, was uh, not liked by Seal or his uh, management team. And they scrapped it, and the song anyway flopped. It was a disaster song, and it went nowhere. Uh, I can't remember the video was, if, if the video was even released. If it was, it was for a very short time. The song died a dog's death. Bye-bye. Cut to, I don't know, a year or so later, uh, I'm invited to the MTV Awards. I go to the awards. I had some glamour date. I think it was the model Bridget Hall, a photo date. And uh, I'm sitting there, and the video that Joel Schumacher directs for the same song from the hit movie, in my opinion, not a very good video, uh, wins video of the year. It just shows you, you never know. I noticed that when I was going through your videography, uh, it sort of jumped out at me because I have to admit, I, I don't think I'd actually seen your version of the video before that point, which actually leads me to something else that I'm kind of curious about. There's a video um, in your uh, history that I, that I think was never released. Is that correct? The salt and pepper Cheryl Crow video? It's hard for me to remember, but okay. I, I, I do remember doing a video for Cheryl Crow that she didn't like. 
Uh, the reason I ask is this is sort of a strange anecdotal thing, but it was a song that she did with Salt and Pepper mm-hmm. called Imagine. I think I remember this now. That was about racial inequality and features the lyric, I can't breathe in the chorus, which I think is weirdly prescient for 2016, given our current political climate. I thought that was yeah. very strange. And I noticed somebody uploaded the video less than a year ago. It's on YouTube now. You can watch it with the or numbers scrolling at the bottom of the screen. Definitely not an official release, but it's up there and out oh, there now. Pirated. Interesting. Yes. I think the problem with that video was that at that time, Sheryl Crow had taken a stance that she was going to be anti-glamour. She was not going to be objectified. She was not going to play by the rules of glamour and makeup and being pretty in any conventional sense. And, of course, that's something that I do. I idealize people. And so she went along for the ride. She uh, let me direct her hair and makeup. I'm, very, I'm always very involved in the look and feel of what my stars project and on every level, from every eyelash to every sequin or whatever it is, or no makeup, if that's the statement. Uh, so I, of course, wanted to re-image Cheryl and make her glamorous. And she allowed that. But then she didn't like it. And it's just so funny that a couple of years later, she got a little older, out came the makeup and the hair <laughs> so she just wasn't ready but an artist who you did do that with and this is a, another person who i think with the video that you directed for her sort of helped to create her persona is jules foolish games video which i feel like before that point this is like just as i was like starting to get obsessed with music in general mm-hmm. in my life she seemed like kind of a folk singer mm-hmm. who would come out of nowhere playing an acoustic guitar in her first video. And then I remember when the Foolish Games video came out, it was like, oh, this is like a super glamorous person who is a star. That's one of my favorite videos. It's a really beautiful video. And I think it looks beautiful now. It's quite romantic. Uh, I've had long relationships with certain people in the business. Uh, I did several videos uh, for uh, Jewel. Well, we became friendly. We're still friendly and many photography sessions, and uh, she's really special to me. And I met her shooting her first cover of Rolling Stone, which is how the conversation came about that led to Foolish Games. Um, I wanted to go to an archetypical place in in my mind and in the video, a place where the forces of nature come together. Those are places like the beach, where water and earth come together, the desert, where sky and wind and ground, earth come together. Uh, But I was thinking very much of a place uh, on the Big Island in Hawaii that I'd visited called the Devastation Trail, which is a place of blackened earth and ebonized trees. It's quite surreal looking. It doesn't really exist anymore, but used to be able to go there because I think it got covered by fresh lava a few years later. And there was a wooden boardwalk that took you through this landscape that was completely surreal. And if you're talking uh, in metaphorical terms about the end of a relationship, a charred landscape uh, is uh, not a bad place to go mentally and emotionally. So that was the idea. We ended up shooting it on a mountaintop in Chatsworth that we painted black. <laughs> and I think that another big influence was uh, the work of the photographer Paolo Reversi, who's an Italian fashion photographer, was very active in Italian Vogue at that time. And Italian Vogue and you know, all the magazines uh, were influential for me. And so I was attempting at that point in my career to import the look of fashion and photography into moving imagery. So those are some of the influences. Um, If I could ask you about just kind of a personal favorite, uh, the video that you made for Morrissey. Mm -hmm. Um, He's somebody who I love and Mm -hmm. have my whole life. Uh, Can you... 
but he's also ha- has a reputation for being difficult to work with. I think specifically on music videos, I've heard. Mm-hmm. Uh, can you tell me what the process was like working with him? And is it something you recall fondly? Uh, I recall the project fondly. Uh, I am endlessly indulgent of the artists that I work with. Uh, they are uh, a tuning fork for emotion and artistry. And uh, for me, they really can do no wrong. In any way, bad behavior makes a great story afterwards. Mm-hmm. I'm just there for the day or two. You know? <laughs> I don't have to live with it every day. Uh, if I had to make a movie with Morrissey for three months, I'd probably just go quietly into a room and stab my eyes out with knitting needles. But uh, for a day or two, with him hiding in the dressing room and crying, carrying on, uh, didn't bother me one bit. Uh, so I understood that was part of his persona. Well, it's a great video. Um, and it's it, sort of, oh, sorry, go ahead. It, and it's a video that challenges gender norms. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Someone, somewhere, oh, yeah. The idea creation process. I can't think, first of all, I can't think of a more pat answer. You know, you go see a Q&A or something like that. Where do you get your ideas? It's sort of a, almost a joke question at that point. But the cultivation and curation of ideas to put together into a treatment to, to give back to someone else in a way that's understandable is actually a very specific process. Can you tell me what yours is like? My ideas come from my unconscious and they come from the vast a number of things. I've exposed myself to the things that I love. I've been questing after every kind of visual, photograph, painting, film, video clip, music, uh, my whole life. So that's all imbued in me, and I can call it up instinctively at any time. Uh, So frame of reference, uh, uh, unconscious or subconscious, is the way to go. Uh, I don't approach things logically. Uh, With the music video, it starts with the music. That means listening to it and getting into a meditative state while I do that, that might involve meditation uh, or a glass of wine or smoking a substance that uh, promotes meditative thinking. This is something that I would do alone, probably in the middle of the night, probably in my bathroom. And ideas will start to come. Uh, The first ideas come in the form of color, pure color. Uh, There's a, a system of painted papers called Colorade paper. They come in a little pack, like a deck of cards. They were, de- they were developed by, the Colorade system was developed by Joseph Albers, who was the head of uh, fine arts uh, at Yale University for many years and a great theorist in the area of color. And they are very special colors. They're not printed. They are actually silkscreen pigment on paper. They are very, very rich, beautiful, delicious colors. So meditative state, on go the headphones, songs on repeat. I'm alone. I'm quiet in a private space in the middle of the night. By the way, waking up in the middle of the night is a great way to access my subconscious state because I'm a little bit sleepy and I'm a little bit instinctive and I'm not being logical. So the first step is listen to the music and see what colors speak to me. So it's almost like playing solitaire, a fan of colors, color hierarchies, color combinations that feel right to me. It's very instinctive. Then out comes the computer. In the old days, it was my library. And I might just search the color blue just the color blue, very instinctively. And I'll find images and click them into a folder and build from there and there and there. Of course, looking at the lyrics is very helpful, trying to understand the text of the song and the subtext of the song. 
Uh, the next step is to gather those visuals, uh, print them out on colored paper, and trim them to the exact same size and proportion as the colored papers. Now I have mm, 20 colors and 60 or 70 images. They're all the same size. And I sit on the floor and I lay them out and I play with them again, solitaire time, until they start to create narratives. The pictures and the colors tell me the story. Then I can form the ideas, translate those ideas into notes, narrate them to my writing assistant, and begin to uh, build a cohesive idea. That's how I do it. Did the advent of technology that might seem like it would make that process easier, did that help you? Or was there an adjustment period where you were trying to figure it out in a new medium once it starts to go sort of more internet-based on that? Oh, no, it just made it easier. So much easier. Way more fun. Just fabulous. Wow. My fingertips can touch anything at any time. That's just wonderful. And then do your assistants or the people you work with who will go and put a deck together? Well, what they'll do is they'll prepare the materials for me. Then I might go home again the next night and play with them. And I'll even go so far as role-playing. I'll stand in front of them. I know this sounds silly, but I'll stand in front of the mirror and imagine myself as that artist and perform the song for myself. I can only imagine what that looks like. Oh, my God. That's a video I want to make. No, 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 no. <laughs> but it will help me uh, because I have to project myself into their persona and experiment with that and really take it in deeply. So those are some of the techniques that I use to develop uh, music videos, and uh, I adapt those same ideas in other areas of creative direction. You directed a video for Marilyn Manson for Long Hard Road Out of Hell. Oh, that's another favorite of mine. That's one of my favorite videos of all time. It was just absolutely wonderful working with him. And I can remember when he came to the editing room to see the cut, and he was wearing his giant platform Herman Munster shoes. And he's a tall man, so he's about seven feet tall, I think, with the shoes on. And I'm five foot six. And he just came bounding across the room and gave me this big hug. That was unexpected. And uh, I, the whole project was really enjoyable. I had just come back from a holiday uh, in Spain. I'd gone to Sevilla for the first time and seen the cathedral there. And the whole Spanish Baroque was very much on my mind. Uh, I wanted to take a shot at Christianity. I wanted to do things that were extremely glamorous in a very sick way, uh, uh, a twisted way. Uh, and there is a film, Vampiros Lesbos. is an exploitation film produced by Dino De Laurentiis in the 70s in Italy. Uh, and uh, yes, it's about vampire lesbians. And I was mad for the album, the soundtrack album, which has some great images on it. And that was a huge influence. I would say the cathedral in Sevilla and the, the, the album cover art for Vampiros Lesbos were probably the two biggest uh, influences there. And of course, Marilyn Manson himself and his persona and the song. Uh, but uh, yes, I can't think of another time in my career where I walked up to an artist with a tray and said, here's your costume for the second act. And it was one ripped black woman stocking and a wig <laughs> and a ton of makeup. And you talk about the sort of old Hollywood glamour. There's a scene of him essentially on a fainting couch, sort of in, in a pretty traditional old Hollywood kind of pose with the long hair. Mm -hmm. um, was there anything that you wanted to do that he said no to? Not that I recall. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. He's a very funny guy. Mm -hmm. And you know his antics on stage, so you know what I'm referring to. Absolutely. 
And I also know that that was a period where, I mean, maybe once or twice a generation, an artist crosses over into the Senate subcommittee level of controversial. It must have been fun to be kind of a part of that in some way. I mean, that video was definitely like a moment for Oh, him. to portray him as a Christ, a sneering Christ, and a deviant? That is delightful. I don't think you could get away with that today. Everything is so super sensitive in our culture now. And with the advent of social media, uh, the piling on of commentary is so enormous and so impactful. Uh, it was a different time. So you continue to make music videos and you start working with a generation of people like uh, Beyonce, Miley Cyrus, people like this, who are influenced by the work that you did with a group of artists, let's say a decade earlier. Mm -hmm. How has the mind set of the artists changed in your opinion how do how have you seen it progress um how do you feel like that has changed there are two major shifts the first i would call uh somewhat facetiously the glamour industrial complex and the second i would call uh as we all call it uh the selfie generation uh I, i'm coming from a time when photographers and sometimes editors of magazines who are also my clients sought to interpret celebrity through the way they dressed and image stars. And so I was making a commentary uh, on those stars uh, by the way that I put them together, presented them on, in all creative aspects, whether it was a photography or film project. Uh, now uh, we have stars doing it for themselves. And they don't really need, I mean, Kim Kardashian doesn't need me to make her look great. She has a book out at Rizzoli of her selfies. I think the power has shifted. When I began, uh, there was no such job as stylist to the stars. I was the stylist of my own shoots in the very, very beginning. I would go to Maxfield, which is a store that still exists in LA, and beg them to let me borrow clothes. Uh, Andy Warhol's people would call up Tiffany in Beverly Hills because I always wanted only the finest quality. I, if I was gonna use jewels, oh, I might use fake jewels uh, for you know the camp quality rhinestone pins and such. But if I was going to use jewels, they were real jewels. And in those days, I would go I'd be set up with an appointment, somebody shifting Beverly Hills through Andy and his people in New York. And I would go in and I could pick out half a million dollars worth of jewels for my shoot. They would put them in a brown paper sack instead of a Tiffany bag and say, oh, no one will know. You know you're fine. <laughs> now, if you go to a shoot, there are 10 different jewelers with tables full of jewels and armed security guards. Uh, there were no stylists. My friends were my first stylists. I invented the idea of what a stylist was in Hollywood. Yes, there were editors of magazines, mm -hmm. but independent stylists, no. So all that shifted. The stars took over the power of controlling their own image. Uh, they, got, they now get paid a great deal of money to wear the clothes of a certain designer or the jewels or whatever and to get huge appearance fees for showing up in the front row. They, they're not just showing up because they like the clothes, believe me, although they may well like the clothes. But uh, it's just shifted. And in a way, star making through imaging and photography by other than the stars and their immediate advisors, Kim and Kanye, for example, is uh, kind of an old-fashioned construct. Do you feel like that's part of why you don't make as many music videos anymore? No. The reason I don't make as many music videos anymore is that I don't care to. I don't really find that stimulating. I've gone past that point. Uh, and I don't feel that it has cultural currency. It's not a career maker for me at this point. Mm. 
as the 90s end and the 2000s start and it's a new era of video making, you're still making videos pretty regularly around the turn of the millennium. Mm -hmm. um, and you work with some people, you know, you, you made it an you made a video for Beyonce in 2002. You know, one could argue that if music video does have any cultural cultural currency in 2016, she's the one who's holding those keys. Oh, you know, you, I stand corrected. You're right, because her, her, her videos and her video albums are just absolutely incredible. And so she's really revived the form. Just when I thought, actually, you know, when I really thought videos were dead, and had no interest for me at all. Along came Nick Knight and Lady Gaga, and I was like, that's a music video. Mm -hmm. And I hadn't seen a good one in a long, long time. Uh, but what I mean is that MTV, Total Request Live, uh, the nameplate with the name of the director on the screen was a career maker. The model for my career, and I come from a little bit earlier era, uh, was that you worked editorially for magazines for very little money or no money, or you paid for it yourself, actually, funded it, uh, but your name was on it, and that was a showcase. And then people in advertising agencies saw that, saw that innovative, creative work, and then requested you for advertising, and that's where you could monetize your name. And exactly the same model existed for music videos. You did a music video for practically nothing, or maybe sometimes for a lot, just depends on what it was, but the point was your name was on it, and people saw it, and at those ad agencies, MTV was on 24 hours a day, and it was like a great showcase, and that led to lots of work. That's not the axiom that works today, not generally. That was Matthew Ralston, who, again, is not related to me, but I wish he was. April, we just heard my guest Matthew Ralston talk about his work with Morrissey. First of all, I'd like to introduce you to our listeners. I'm going to say a couple of things. And when I say them, can you just tell me how you're involved in those worlds? Okay. Okay. <laughs> Television. I'm a comedian okay. who's on TV sometimes. Uh huh. You host TV shows sometimes? I host a show called Almost Genius on True TV. And I'm also sometimes on things like At Midnight and various panel shows. Next topic, stand-up comedy. I do it a lot. You do it are a lot. Are these good answers? <laughs> they are. And specifically, you did a tour that is related to Morrissey. Will you tell me about that? I did. That? Uh, last summer, I had a break. Last year, I was touring with Chris Hardwick the entire year. I was his feature, but we had a month off. And in that month, I followed Morrissey's tour and booked my own shows in between his so I just rented a car, drove across the country, and yeah, he would play one night, and then the next night, whatever city we were in, I would do stand-up, and I just did that for a whole month. And I feel like I've told, I've made a lot of people laugh telling them the name of that tour, which is the Louder Than Bombing Tour. Louder Than Bombing. Which is my favorite comedy Thank tour you. name ever. Thank you. And I, and I made the replica, like the flyer was the replica of the cover of Louder Than Bombs. I kind of want that to be my album. I mean, it's just too perfect. So I don't know. But yeah. So that's my other job. And then I think I'm also kind of like a professional Morrissey liker. Uh -huh. 
Well, that's why you're here. Yeah. Um, but before we get into Morrissey, can you tell me a little bit about your introduction to music videos in general? Who were the first people you really remember seeing on MTV? Well, my youngest... I mean, yeah, my youngest memories are things of the time, obviously, like, you know, Culture Club or Adam Ant or... I distinctly remember being no older than five or six and the girl that was that babysat for me all the time was the daughter of friends of my parents and she was obsessed with culture club and i remember loving that like i'm like these are cool songs i guess i like harmonica i'm six but then seeing the videos i truly remember going i hope i grow up to be as beautiful as a lady as that like fully thinking board george was a woman 100 uh-huh. percent. so i was so that was my time of dudes dressing up like ladies uh-huh. and i was way into it and wanted to be as pretty as all of them and then as you get a little bit older yeah do you start to develop like crushes on like heartthrob type people i my crushes were all gay dudes for sure uh-huh. before i knew a gay was. i mean i had michael stipe all over my walls i had morrissey all over uh-huh. my walls i had you know yeah so i was into that but yeah i what would be but george michael for sure like obviously i thought george michael was hot that was one thing when you were like hey let's talk about videos and ones that made impressions on you for sure like the first ever thing that gave me like sex feelings was the video for i want your sex that was the first time i was like wait a minute Uh, speaking of our guest matthew ralston his work on those TLC salt and pepper videos mm-hmm. like those were very formative things for sure. a video to come out when I was like 13 or 14 sure. years old yeah 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 absolutely yeah it's like oh this is uh I've never seen a woman <laughs> sing in a video like this this is right. pretty interesting yeah. um so Morrissey is a guy who kind of puts those two things together because obviously the Smiths and his solo stuff are very well respected artistically mm-hmm. but then also he's a hammy heartthrob too yeah he's a real hot dude uh-huh was a real hot dude when we, you were like, we're going to talk about Morrissey videos, and I was like, the only thing I can really do is rank them by hotness, uh-huh. because they're not exactly, like, good videos. Okay, so... And that's not the fault of any director. I think it's the fault of... I think Morrissey... They don't have, like, story... They're not, like, little movies. No. The Every day is, like, Sunday video. Right. Which is a favorite for me. Which he appears at very... He appears in very briefly at the end. But it's the best twist ending! <laughs> the ending of that video, I was almost gonna say spoiler alert, but you suck if you haven't seen it yet, is where, yeah, where he's wearing the girl on his t-shirt. That yes. is a great ending! Yes. But we can agree that agreeing to be in the video for five seconds yes. and covering your face... For sure. ...as if you... It's the last thing in the world 100%. that you have time for is, yeah. is very Morrissey. Yes, it is. And you and uh, you know he wasn't there. It's not on set. Like, somebody with a camcorder was just, like, filming him in his living room sitting with that shirt and was like all right edit it together like he didn't even show up or anything yeah yeah for those of you who haven't seen the everyday is like sunday video you should watch it immediately a girl buys a morrissey record yeah she appears to be obsessed with him everything is leading us to that point and then at the end of the video we see her look through a telescope yes fondly at morrissey and he's wearing a shirt with her picture on it yes uh he's not he's not in that video a whole lot but the suede head video, which is maybe my favorite Morrissey video, really opens with him lounging in a bathtub. Yes, is that on your list of of sexiest Morrissey moments? For sure. Although weirdly, my favorite is when he's in the field playing bongos with the cows. Uh-huh. That's my favorite part of the suede head video. The suede head video is where he just goes to all of the James Dean landmarks in Indiana. 
I rank them by, by hotness, by hair. Uh-huh. The finest hair moment is uh, the Ouija board video. Uh-huh. No one on earth has ever had more perfect hair. And I like how 50s it looks because it's just really bright. It has like bright, crazy wallpaper. He looks like he stepped out of 1954. So that ranks high. My number one favorite Morrissey video is Sing Your Life. Absolutely. The hottest. Chrissy Hines in it. Uh Uh-huh. Super 50s. Like dance party. And it was when I prefer rockabilly Morrissey aesthetically to the rest of the Morrisseys. Yeah, it's like the um, hairdresser should be billed like equal with the director. Yes, (laughs) 100%. April, as a little experiment, I'm going to show you a still from the Suede Head music video, which I believe to be the most Morrissey moment ever recorded on film. Okay. Could you just uh, describe what you see on screen to the listener and uh, give me your reaction? Sure. Uh, Yeah, (laughs) of course. We're seeing Morrissey in a barn, again, with the greatest hair ever on a human being's head, reading... He's reading a book, and the thing that is going to bother me to my grave is that I can't... It's not James Joyce. I know what book he's reading. I've seen... I have this video memorized by the frame. Uh-huh. What book is he reading? Do you think it's Oscar Wilde? It's not Oscar, Oscar Wilde. Wilde. That's the thing, and it's not James Joyce. It's like James Wickholm Riley. <laughs> okay. I almost <laughs> want to bet money that's what it is. But yeah, so it's him sitting in a barn, probably surrounded by cows that he's like petting and caressing, mm-hmm. reading a giant book. Yeah, we can also see that it's uh, frosty It's air. very cold. He's uh, breathing smoke. He looks... Yes. Very pensive. He's yes. surrounded by hay. Yes. Uh, which feels like... In a music video, by the way, FYI, everyone. I mean, that is so Morrissey. Like, film me reading a book in a barn with cows. Okay, cool, dude. What a rock star. This is a good example of what a lot of this episode is about, which is there are lots of directors who think in terms of story. And then almost every Morrissey video, including the Alma Matters video that Matthew Ralston did, they're really about a feeling. Yeah, like mood. A mood. Yes. And the Alma Matters video, you know, it's in the interview, Matthew Ralston talks about chasing after a color and a specific look for yeah. a video. That video is a wash in these very 90s greens. Yes. It looks, it has a very specific look, and that's how he starts building out a video. And then from there, it's, well, what can we get Morrissey to do? Right. We'll give him a kitten. We'll have yes. him throw some cereal on some skinheads. Yes. yes. Uh, and at the end, you have like a very memorable, very interesting video, I think. Yes. But that's, I mean, I, it's so fascinating to me that somebody who seems like such a control freak like Morrissey wasn't coming to the set with a list of demand like wasn't like this is exactly how this better look dude or else that's fascinating to me it's funny to me that people who seem to have such a tight grip on every single other aspect of their career would leave something like a music video up to someone else that's crazy to me at an era in an era where they really had a lot of power yes for sure and that's i'm sure putting trust in a director is something that there's a reason why people are directors i mean you know, they know what they're doing and they have a vision and they, you know, go into it being like, here's what I want it to look like. But to me and to you also, like somebody growing up watching music videos and them forming you as a person, the idea that the person in it didn't, that's not their idea blows my mind. You know, you mentioned Michael Stipe. I think that's a great example. I mean, look at Losing My Religion, Mm -hmm. I think, which again is in a similar kind of 90s color palette. Yes, for sure. Uh, as the Morrissey video, um, and you see this cherub with a heart taped to their chest. And right. It's, 
It's pretty it, bonkers. It's pretty nuts. And you do think about it being like, oh, yeah, that clearly is like a Michael Stipe. But yes. it probably wasn't. Right. Most of those things were probably a director's choice. Yes. They ended up coming in later. And you're right. As the viewer at a young age, it is such an all-encompassing part of what you think about that band. Look yes. at Kurt Cobain's image from yes. music videos. So defined. Yes. By the way that he looked in those videos. And I think what good directors like Matthew Ralston did with Morrissey is say, this guy is extremely compelling. Right. I have this limited amount of work that I'm going to get from him. I know that up front. How can I maximize that? Right. And give it as much as possible. And then at the end, you end up with something hopefully that people remember. Right. Yeah, that's true. And I guess they do have control. I mean, the artist does pick the director for a reason. You mm-hmm. know, I mean, clearly Morrissey saw his work and was like, okay, yeah. so I do want to work with that guy because even though I don't have an exact idea in my head, I, I trust this guy to make something that I like based on his previous work. Right. So, but still that's, I mean, if I'm, please believe if I had any musical talent whatsoever and I made videos for my songs, I'm coming in there with like storyboards. I'm like, this better look exactly like A, B and C. Have you seen this video for this band? Because I want to rip it off. Like I'm fully in control of that. Just FYI for when you direct my music video. (laughs) Yes. All right. First things first, you buy a guitar. (laughs) (laughs) First things first, you possess songwriting abilities. You Google Do not have those. Yeah. Yeah. April, I look forward to directing that music video for you very soon. That was April Richardson, comedian, host of Almost Genius on True TV, and Morrissey Superfan. I'm your host, Daniel Ralston, at Daniel Ralston on Twitter. If you like the show, please go to iTunes and give Videohead a nice rating. It takes about 11 seconds. I just did it. And if you'd like to see all the videos we talked about on today's show, you can find them at MTV.com. Thanks for listening to Videohead on the MTV Podcast Network. This episode of Videohead was produced by Mukta Mohan, Michael Catano, and Kasia Mihailovich for the MTV Podcast Network. The Videohead theme song is by Roxanne Clifford. Follow us on Twitter and like us on Facebook at MTV Podcasts. And subscribe to this and other MTV Podcasts wherever you find your favorite shows.